Beloved, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. We're reading today from verse 1 down to verse 12. Again, it seems amazing to me that we're in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it seems so long ago. I remember when we started in chapter 1 and I thought to myself, it'll be years before we finish this. I'll be lucky if I'm not an old man before I finish this. And, uh, and here we are right at the end. Maybe I am an old man, but still, it seems to me as if it's gone past far too quickly. Let me read it to you and then we'll begin to look at it together. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they... And certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this that behold two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their heads to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned to the tomb, or from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Johanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them these things, told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them, but Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed marveling, at him, marveling to himself at what had happened. Amen. This is perhaps the single greatest event to ever happen on earth. This is perhaps the most spectacular of all the things that have ever happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. We've come through the, the gospel of Luke, the account of Luke, and we've looked at the miracles, at the casting out of demons. We, we've seen the, the, the manifesting, the, the making of food, the bread and the fish, and feeding the tens of thousands. We've seen him exercise control over the spiritual realms. Realms that you and I are not even aware of. We can't see or understand or know the reality of them. But Jesus was able to distinguish and to command and to be able to force his will in that realm. And all of those things we were given a detailed account. We, we saw the circumstances and understood more or less the context Jesus walking on the water. We're given an, an insight into what happened. But yet here, here at the single most important event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus, where God raises Jesus from the dead, not a 
Lord. None of the Gospels tell us how it happened. None of the Gospels explain to us what happened. How did it come to being? It is a, an event that is veiled from human eyes. It is withheld from us. We are not allowed to know the, the general, the, the specific details of that event. And, and for me, that's one of the, the main evidences that you know that this wasn't written by a human being. Human beings love to tell you the details of their experiences. They love to tell you that, oh, and I felt the hairs going up on my neck and oh, goosebumps and the light was coming in a certain way. And I, and I heard things and I saw things and things that was mighty and amazing. Ooh. And our enthusiasm overflows, doesn't it? We want people to experience what we experienced. We want people to see what we saw and to feel the specialness of it. And yet in this account, nothing. Might as well have crickets in the background. No, chip, 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 chip. There's an absence of insider knowledge, an absence of revelation. And it's so God. It's so the way God works, not man works. Because again, man needs the attention, the drama. We, we, we need the, the golden cherubs. And if you ever go to Rome, I've never been to Rome, but I know some of you have been. And you go to the Vatican and you, you, you look and you see what human religion looks like. Some of us have been to Barcelona, to that big cathedral that they have in the middle of Barcelona. I don't remember what it's called, but it's that great edifice to human religion uh, with all of the sculptures and statues all over it. It's just dripping. It's the highest pinnacle of idolatry. And if you go to these places, when human beings try to create a sense of awe and wonder, they make it complicated. They make it big and grand and dramatic and powerful. And they want you really to get an impression of that this is something bigger than you. But yet in this account, we have none of it. God just tells us. Our God is not like a man that he has to make big something. He has to make drama. He has to proclaim before all the eyes of men. God did something amazing and it was hidden from the eyes of men. He didn't blow his own trumpet. Didn't bang his own drum. It happened and no one was there to see it happen. This is not recorded. That should speak volumes about who our God is. Of how his spirit, the Holy Spirit, interacts and reacts. We're told here in the very first chapter, or very first verse, that it was on the first day of the week, a Sunday. Now, Hebrews, Jews didn't have names for their days of the week. They had numbers. It was the first day of the week from the Sabbath. It was the second day of the week from the Sabbath. And so on and so on and so on. And everything rotated around the Sabbath day. And here we have the women getting up 
undoing. It tells us in the other Gospels that it was just before the dawn, as the day was dawning. And then as they get to the garden, it was just after the sun had risen. We see that they're ready to go. It's from the very start. They're on their way. They're prepared. Indeed, this is one of the reasons why the Christian church has always historically met on the first day of the week. Because we commemorate, we remember, we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. We don't gather together on the Friday when he was crucified. We don't gather together on the Saturday when he was in the grave. No, we gather together as a proclamation, as a celebration, to display to the world our faith in a risen Savior. By gathering together on a Sunday, on this day, on the first day, we are telling the world that we have a living faith. In a living Savior. That we are making the declaration that he is no longer in the grave. But he is risen. And he is alive. It is the single greatest separation between us and the world. That we gather together on this day. Every week to worship him. So it has been from the beginning of the church. Beloved, it will be into eternity. These women gathered together. Their idea was that they would meet, that they would go to to the the grave, and they would re-embalm the body of Jesus. Now, they they didn't do what the Egyptians do, draw out all the internal bits. They simply packed them in, in salt and herbs and things like this here to preserve the body, to to. Make it nicer. I'm sure it had other effects as well. I don't know them. But they're on their way to give the last rites respect to the body. To make sure that things have been done properly. As a final goodbye. And I think not just simply for the body of Jesus. But also for their own sense of mourning. I want you to understand and see that these women didn't expect Jesus to be risen. They were not expecting him to be resurrected. In their hearts, in their minds, in their expectations, he'd still be in the tomb. We're told in another gospel that they were wondering who would roll the stone away for them. There was no faith in their hearts. There was no expectation. There was no excitement. They're still in the depths of despair. They're still reeling, going through the emotional shock of having seen Jesus brutally betrayed and murdered. These disciples, these believers who had been with Jesus and had Jesus explain to them Their hearts were still darkened and they still did not know. But I would also have you notice that it was the women. In Jewish ancient world, women were considered a second class citizen. We all, I think I've preached this before. Jewish Pharisees would pray, Lord, thank you that I'm not a a heathen, a, a dog or a woman or something along those lines. Because women were powerless in their culture. 
But yet here we have revealed in the scriptures women being elevated as to the very first people whom the resurrection was revealed to. There's not a pushing down. It's a, a recognizing that these women who, again, were not expected, did not have a, a living faith that Jesus would be resurrected, perhaps, yes, on that final day when God returned. But they were not expecting him to be out of the grave. These women came. Where were all the men? At home having breakfast, I guess, you know, sitting around in the depths of despair, still shocked, still going through their emotional mourning experience. It says here in verse 2, But they found the stone had been rolled away. And when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. And as it happened, as they were greatly perplexed, and I love that word, greatly perplexed, in my Bible, it means thoroughly shocked, speechless. You know it must have been bad when the women were speechless. Oh no, that's a man, you're a joke there. Totally perplexed. They couldn't even imagine. It tells us in another gospel that Mary Magdalene believed that they had moved the body. The grave robbers had come and stolen the body of Jesus. They were so shocked. They couldn't even imagine what happened. They did not remember his words. They did not have the faith to even comprehend that God had raised them from the dead. So small, so childish, so incomplete was their faith. They were perplexed, speechless. And it says here, behold, two men, angels, it tells us in another gospel. We identify that by their shining clothes. And they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth. And I, I, I think this is very telling. In my experience as a Pentecostal charismatic, I have met many men who have proclaimed that they have met angels. They've had angelic experiences. I had once when we were in Spain and we were at a conference there and we heard a man tell about all his experiences with the angels and how mighty and demons and how he physically wrestled demons. And he told us of this experience where what he was sitting in a, I think it was in Tasmania. And he was sitting by a pool and he said, I was, he was so tired. I was so, he'd been ministering all night and he was so exhausted. And he looked up to heaven as he was lying by the pool. And he, on this, on this uh, lounger, and he said, I looked up to, to heaven and I said, oh Lord, I'm so tired. I'm so tired, Lord. Can you not strengthen me? And all of a sudden he felt someone touching one of his shoulders. He looked up and there was an angel. An angel was standing behind him, clothed in shining garments, massaging his shoulders. Now in his story, the angel was a a female angel. There are no such things in the scriptures. But it was a female angel. He said, it looked like Barbie. A Barbie angel was rubbing my shoulder. 
And he went on to tell us how attractive this Barbie angel was in its fullness and wickedness. And my ears were starting to turn red and I was going, getting a bit cross as this man from the pulpit was telling us these things. And they said, oh, and I said, oh, it was glorious, it was wonderful. And divine energy was flowing down. And then all of a sudden he felt that someone else touching his shoulder. He looked up and there was another angel, a Barbie angel, rubbing his other shoulder. And it went on and finally there were six angels rubbing his, his shoulders, his hands and his feet. And it re-nourished him. And I, I can remember at the time being perplexed. <laughs> being, I said, that's a lie. I said from the, from the congregation, you're a liar. Because the Bible tells us that when people encounter angels, they fall to the ground and put their faces to the ground. They literally hide themselves. They go into to the natural response of, of when you, you throw yourself to the ground and you cover up your head. So great is the fear. So great. Because these are otherworldly beings. These are not Barbie angels. These are not desirable. They are terrible and mighty and frightening. And these women, whenever they met these two men in shining garments, they threw themselves to the floor. Hiding their faces. Never be deceived by anyone who tells you stories about angels where they're interacting with them like you would interact with a person. So great and terrible are angels that human beings quake in fear and will fall to the ground. Think of Daniel and Daniel's experiences. Not our Daniel, but Daniel from the Bible. Daniel hasn't had any angel experiences as far as I know. But think of Daniel from his experiences in the Bible. And how great and terrible those experiences were. How Daniel was left in bed for many days trying to recover of his experiences. Let's never be deceived. We live in a time where people tell all kinds of mad dog stories. All kinds of wacko. It's like the, the more ridiculous the story, the more believable it is for some people. The Bible tells us that the angels, even the nice ones, are great and terrible beings. And human beings fall down before them and are tempted to worship them. Remember John in Revelation, when he falls down before the angel and the angel says, no, no, don't do that. Get up, get up. Don't worship me. And these two angels, or one of them, says to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Oh, wow. The living among the dead. There is this that statement alone, Jesus is alive. Now, you and I, we live 2,000 years or so after the fact. But Jesus is alive. He is not dead. We are the only religion in the entire world that can honestly say that the object of our worship, the one in whom we trust, the one in whom we hope, is not dead but alive. He is living. Muhammad, dead. Buddha, dead. The Hindu gods, they die and come back and die and come back. But they're dead. They're not living. 
Beloved, we are the only ones who hold that our Savior, our God, the object of our worship is alive. Alive. True and real. We do not commemorate him or or think of him in a way that we would think of Martin Luther or Calvin. You know, sometimes when I'm reading about these men, like Spurgeon, when I was obsessed with Spurgeon for my, my preaching, and it seemed to me as Spurgeon was alive sometimes, so deep, I went in my dive, you know, read all these books and did all these other stuff, read Spurgeon's writing, and so often it can seem as if he's alive, if he's there, he's like John MacArthur, just not here but somewhere else, but he's dead. But Jesus Christ is alive. The Savior that you serve, the one who owns you, is alive. That should put the fear of God in you. That should shape and mold how you live your lives. And how you celebrate Him. How you remember Him. How you walk daily before Him. He's alive. But yet these women we can see by this comment, did not expect him to be alive. They thought that he was still dead. Remember, it says here in verse 6, he is not here but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. And then he quotes Jesus. The son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified on the third day. Rise again. And they remembered his words. Beloved, let's speak Bible to one another. Let's encourage one another with biblical truths. These people, these young women, women, young women, 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 young, whoever they were, were down in the dumps and their their faith was at rock bottom. And these angels didn't come with some sort of spiritual power where he put his hands, they put their hands on them and transferred something. He, they didn't come and blow on them or take their white jacket and hit them with it or something ridiculous. The angels spoke the words of Jesus and they remembered. And that cold, frigid heart full of mourning and weeping and sadness and pain it broke and light came out all of a sudden their their world has been turned upside down they remembered what jesus said and they looked around them and there all of a sudden there was hope all of a sudden there was the prospect this could be real this could be right this could have actually happened And their mourning has turned, their sadness has turned into joy and enthusiasm and expectation. And we must always remember that it is by the words of God that faith comes. We should never lean upon our worldly wisdom. I'm not saying we shouldn't trust common sense. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we must rely wholly and solely upon the word of God. But what he has spoken. If your heart is downcast, 
and you are sad or if you are not where you should be in your faith, don't try and take measures by human means, but rather turn to the Word of God. Lord, remind me what you have said. Refresh your heart by looking at the promises of God, remembering who God is, remembering who Jesus is. He is the living God. Living. He's not a remembrance of a wooden God, an idol. He's not a, some great historical figure that we reflect on. He's here with us now. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwells you. And you are never alone, for He has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. These women, indeed all of the believers, but particularly these women, their faith was at zero. They had no ability. The resurrection wasn't because of their faith. I heard someone once say it was because of the faith of these women going to the, to the, uh, to the grave. That God was able to resurrect Jesus from the grave because it was all based on their faith. There is no faith here. There's no remembrance here. They're sad and full of sorrow. But yet God acted despite their negativity, despite their expectation to find a dead body. God fulfilled his plans and his purposes despite the unfaithfulness of his people. He wasn't bound by it. He wasn't limited by it. It wasn't a partial resurrection or a half resurrection. It wasn't one of just Jesus' hands was resurrected. God raised them from the dead despite the unbelief, despite the coldness of the heart. And that should encourage all of us. This should encourage all of us. For we may not be as negative as these ladies. We may not have rock bottom faith. But we might not be where we're supposed to be. We, things happen in our lives. Our own sinfulness plagues us. Doubt, fear. And we think, well God, what can God do in my life? And we look around us and we see the the deadness of the religion. We see the foolishness of the so-called Christian church. We see the vast expanse of unbelief around us and we say, well, what can God do? Oh, He's limited. He's, he's bound by our unbelief. He's so pushed down in some sense. But beloved, it is not so God was able to do the greatest miracle that has ever happened on earth, ever. The greatest single event. God raised them from the dead as a declaration that Christ's sacrifice had been accepted. That his work on our behalf had been fulfilled. And he did it despite the unbelief of man. Despite the lack of cooperation between human beings and God. 
God fulfilled his plans and his purposes perfectly. I should encourage you. There is hope. Trust that God will do and is doing all that he wants to do in according to his plans and purposes. It may not be flashy. It may not be you know, lights and disco balls and angels and smoke machines and the way our human nature desires it. It might be quiet and humble and understated. It might be almost concealed. But yet God is moving forward with his plans and his purposes and will fulfill them in his time. Learn the lesson of these ladies and their unbelief. Learn the lesson of reflecting and remembering the words of God. It says here in verse 9, And they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And, it was, and then verse 10, it tells us who, who the ladies were. Mary Magdalene, Johanna, Mary the mother of James, that is Jesus' mother. And the other women with them. Who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them, that is the apostles, like idle tales, it says in my Bible, or nonsense. That word means delirium. Crazy talk. It's the kind of babble that one produces when you're in a fever. And you're not making any sense. It's just blah, blah, blah. Crazy talk is coming out of you. These women return back from the tomb. They interrupt breakfast, I would imagine. And they're, they're excited. They're, things are happening. They're talking all over each other. And they're, they're, there's, there's energy and there's hope. These women coming to basically a funeral party of men gathered around talking and sad, shocked. And yet the in crashed this party of women and their the enthusiasm the hope was overflowing and the men are like what are you on this the sadness has broken you i understand can you imagine peter you know, big peter big giant peter kind of stroking someone's head i know you believe that but he's gone and they're like no shaking this giant man and this little woman shaking him he's alive and yet the disciples considered their words crazy talk. How deep was their unbelief? How absolute was their lack of faith? They did not expect Jesus to be raised from the dead. Even though he had told them at least three times what was going to happen. We see that there was veiled before their eyes. They did not have the insight. They still were clinging to their plans and their purposes. Their hopes of what would happen in God's kingdom. They were superimposing their desires on God's desires. And they were wanting God to fulfill what they had desired. What they had hoped that which was best for them in the way that they thought it was best for them. 
And yet when the miracle is revealed, when the, the fulfillment of the prophecy is laid before them, crazy talk. You've lost your mind, woman. What are you on? You can kind of imagine somebody saying, get this woman a cup of tea, you know, set her down. Calm yourself down, Mary. Calm yourself down. He's dead. All too often we as Christians can can treat other Christians who have glimpsed the plan of God and have been given a little bit of insight and have that enthusiasm. We can look at them and go, crazy talk. You have lost the plot. You're mad. God is still working. It's not happening. And all too often we can behave like, you know what a wet blanket is? Do you know if you have an oil fire? In my country, we chips, not fr- not crisps, like a, like French fries, chipped potatoes. Don knows what I'm talking about. Fish and chips. You all know fish and chips. In the olden days, we didn't have these fancy fryers. You know the electric ones. You put the. In the olden days, you used to have a a big pot filled with oil, and you'd fried everything in that oil. And my mom had one. It was all black. And, uh, you know, she used the same oil for, like, all my life, more or less. She never changed it. It's the oil that gave it the flavor. I, and she, she never used, you know, see these, these, um, these strainers, these wire baskets that you pull them. My mom never used My mom used a fork. She'd put her hand in that, that boiling oil and she'd put her hand in it and take it out. And I was always like, how did she never burn herself? Well, a wet blanket, whenever it was those... Those uh, oil castrola pots catches fire. It's really dangerous. In Ireland in the olden days, most of the houses that were burnt down were burnt down because people didn't look after their chip pan, right? It's like a volcano of flame would just erupt all over the house. And the only way of putting that fire out was to get a wet tea towel in our house or a blanket, a wet duke, and throw it over the top, and it would cause a, an airtight seal, and it would suffocate the fire, and the fire would go <laughs> immediately. So, when we use the expression in English, you're a wet blanket, we mean that you have the ability to put out any fire, you have the ability to put out any enthusiasm, any passion. You come along, and you're a wet blanket, and that's the end of the heat. Sadly, too many of us Christians behave like wet blankets. We've been disappointed. God hasn't lived up to our expectations. We haven't received that which we wanted. And therefore, when other people, younger people, less important people, even the women, come with a little bit of enthusiasm, a little bit of passion, they're telling us, do you remember that Jesus said this? And he said that, well, it's happened. And we're like immediately, wet blanket. Talking nonsense, madness, you've lost your mind, you're too enthusiastic, sit yourself down. We need to guard our own hearts that we don't become this, that we don't allow our negativity and our lack of faith, our lack of insight into the the things of God to be able to come along and suffocate and to strangle the enthusiasm in other people. 
It says here, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling at him, um, to himself that which had happened. Peter goes and he sees, and we know the, the rest of the story, the, there's an angel there talks to him, but even then his heart is full of unbelief. He is wrestling, wrestling. It's not until Jesus later on appears to him personally and reinstates him. Like Peter had a lot of baggage. We know that he denied the Lord three times. He was carrying all that weight. That was getting in the way of his faith that Jesus was, would be restored and resurrected. And I would imagine there was a wee bit of dread there as well. What's he going to say? If he is resurrected and he knows that I did what I did, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? Will, will, will he still accept me into his kingdom? Will he still be my friend? You can imagine it's a very complex situation with Peter. But Peter's the very first one. He runs. We're told that in the Gospel of John that it was the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John's wee way of describing himself. He goes into the tomb and he sees these things and he knows that. There is a depth here in that we see the different layers of Peter and his enthusiasm, his natural enthusiasm. Remember, Peter's always the first man through the door, the first man to speak. He's always the one with the foot in the mouth, as we say in English, says the wrong things. He was rebuked by God. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, and then finally Jesus many times. And then Paul rebukes him later on as well. Poor Peter got rebuked by everybody. Very complex. But yet we see this enthusiasm where he runs to the, the, uh, the graveyard, to the tomb. Like we could say, this, why didn't God just reveal everything there and then? Just boom! Jesus kind of walks out. And, right, boys, I'm back. Let's get back to work. Let's see. Let's. Why couldn't it have just been that that common sense? You know, that kind of straightforward. Jesus kind of walks out of the tomb and says, "Yes, let's get back to work, boys. Let's start preaching." And the answer is, we don't know. It's a mystery. But what we do know is that he did rise from the dead. He was restored. He did come back. Indeed, the very first person he reveals himself to is Mary Magdalene. She's there back in the garden. She's weeping. She still didn't know what had happened to Jesus. There was the hope, but it tells us that, that she felt a thought that someone had stolen the body of Jesus. John 20 in that chapter. And she's there and an angel appears to her and she's weeping. And she says, I don't know what. And then she feels a presence behind her and she thinks it's the, uh, the gardener of the, of the graveyard. And she says, please, sir, if you know where they've taken his body, can you tell me, please? And then the one who's standing behind her dispels any doubts. She knows immediately who it is. He says her name, Mary. And she knows immediately. And she responds, Rabboni, teacher, master. And she turns and there is Jesus 
She's about to throw herself on him. He says, don't touch me. Because I'm not yet complete, whatever the word was there. There is this aspect of where they're, they're working things out, where God doesn't reveal it in the way that we would want him to reveal it, straightforward. But he reveals it in such a way to his people in the perfect time for them. We're told later on here, we'll look at it next week, the road to Emmaus. And that great experience that these two disciples had. First and foremost, when we talk about the resurrection, we must always remember that he is risen. The important fact isn't how it happened, it is that it happened. It isn't that he was raised from the dead and then died later on. Stop being. It is that he was raised from the dead and is risen today and is still alive today. He is the living spirit in fullness and body. So for us, when we think on the resurrection... We don't remember a certain date or a time. We don't have like in our calendar months, you know, Resurrection Day. I know that the, the religions of this world would have us have Ascension Day and Resurrection Day and Easter Day and Christmas Day. We don't need that because we live with the, re- the risen Christ. He is alive. And when we come here on the first day of the week, we recognize that he is risen and he is alive. And that we are gathering not just together. We don't meet together to remember. We meet together with him. For Christ is here with us today. In all of his fullness. We are gathering together to worship him. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we do it in remembrance of him. As a declaration that he is alive and with us today. And that he will return. Beloved, we consider that the words of Jesus Christ came true about his first rising. Of his resurrection. And everything was fulfilled exactly as he said it would be. That gives us the faith to know that those things that he has said about the future will be fulfilled in exactly the way that he said that they will. That we must not fear or doubt or be confused. I liked what Benedict said during the conference when that loaded question was thrown at him. We all know that Jesus is returning and we'll all be shocked and surprised at how it unfolds. All of us whether wherever you lie on the eschatological framework, all of us will be shocked and amazed. Because at his resurrection, everyone was shocked and amazed. And they had been told to their faces exactly how it was going to work out. And yet they were shocked and amazed. Beloved, let us be confident in our knowledge that he who is resurrected, he who is risen, who God raised them from the dead, that he shall return. His words will be completed and fulfilled. 
But sadly, again, too many of us can be very much like the disciples. We believe in Jesus, but yet we are unbelieving when it comes to the resurrection, or to the, the return, the second coming of Christ. We kind of believe it. Yes, we accept it, but we don't live in the light of it. It doesn't motivate our lives. It doesn't shape how we do things. It's not always there on our shoulder guiding us through every conversation. Let us remember that he who is risen shall return. And for us, the resurrection is a great and glorious and was and is so far on this planet the greatest event that's ever happened. But there will there is coming an event which will even outshine this. When Christ returns, when he rips open the heavens and pours out into our reality with his countless angels and snatches up his people and his wrath is then poured out upon this earth. Christ is returning. That is the great, second great, the greatest event to happen. Let us live in the light of that. Let's not be like these 11 and the others who were gathered there who said, you're talking nonsense. You're, you're crazy talking. Your expectations are too wild. That's not normal nor natural. People don't come back from the dead, you know. Could you imagine that? That, that Lazarus is probably in the same room and they're saying, like, people don't come back from the dead. You know, when they're dead, they're dead. That's the end of it. And Lazarus is like, oh, what do we do? Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. And a Christian, are you living in the light of that? Are you living in the celebration of that? Is that the, the hope of your life? I've talked about this before. The, the Bible says that the hope of the resurrection of the second coming should give great expectancy to you, enthusiasm to you. You should be looking forward to it as a child looks forward to Christmas. Presents. Or to their birthday. Or a holiday that's coming up. Some sort of special event that's going to benefit you and bless you. Make you happy. That is how we as believers should be looking to the second coming. We celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it gives us so much hope. It signifies to us that God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice. That he has, he has, I want to say they use the word met. Satisfied. And that Christ has paid it all. But that signifies something much more for you and I. That he who was faithful to begin a good work will be faithful to complete it. Not just in you and I as, as individual beings, but in the entire plan of salvation. We can trust God despite our unbelief, despite our unfaithfulness, despite our instability. That God will fulfill all his plans and purposes. That Jesus shall return. He shall claim his church. That he shall judge the living and the dead. And we shall enter into eternity future.
Is that not glorious? Is that not wonderful? Is that not frightening? Jesus was 100% accurate about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Jesus will be 100% accurate when it comes to his second coming and about the judging of all humanity before heaven. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without a witness. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us so clearly through the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for the resurrection and all of its veiled mystery. Lord, I, I thank you that you did not display the details to us. You did not explain it. You did not feel the need, Lord, to, to show your hand. We thank you, Lord God, that, that you showed us the instability of the, un, uh, of the believers, of the women, of the, the disciples. Lord, you showed us the, their lack of faith and their lack of consistency. We showed, you showed us, Lord, how you were not bound by their unbelief. You were not held prisoner, Father, by their lack of permission. But your plans and your purposes were fulfilled despite the unbelief of your church. Despite, Lord, the, the, the expectation of your people. We thank you, Lord, that you are very gracious and merciful and good and kind. And, Lord, that you cared for us. That you remember that we are but dust. Lord, how you generously shared and showed yourself to be true and real. Lord, we thank you that there is hope. Lord, we thank you that the people of this world think of our hope as crazy talk, as foolishness, as madness. But Lord, we know that we have a hope steadfast and sure. That Lord, everything that you said about your first coming, your death and your burial, your resurrection, how all of that, Lord, was fulfilled in 100% accuracy. We know that, Lord, you are able to then fulfill and complete all of the things you have said about your second coming and we trust you lord lord we trust you we not, may not understand everything comprehend everything but we know lord that you know father god we pray that you'd speak to the hearts of those who do not believe, do not know you that you draw them to yourself you'd open up their eyes convict them of their sins convince them of your righteousness oh lord convert them gloriously and wonderfully Oh, Lord, we pray these things for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' precious name, amen.